Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I am your host, Jessica. I'm so glad you're here with me this week. I hope you're ready to pick up where we left off talking about Janine Jones. You know, it occurred to me while I've been listening to the Lucy Letby trial that Janine Jones and Lucy Letby are such similar people and they're such similar cases. Here we are in 1980s, Janine Jones works in the pediatric ICU. She's killing kids. People don't suspect her at all. But of course, when she's not there, when she's not on the scene, when she's removed from the situation, children live. Just like Lucy Letby. She works neonatal ICU. She's killing babies. No one recognizes it at first. She's getting away with it. Because why would you suspect someone who has made an oath to heal people, and especially babies, that they would be murdering them? And I just thought, you know, it's very interesting that they parallel each other so much, and it took so long to figure it out for both of them. But thank goodness they were finally both convicted. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Remember, Dr. Robotham, he's already suspected no one else has really been listening to him, and he's finally been given the okay to go have an investigation and hopefully get Janine Jones out of Bear County Hospital. It was decided that Dr. Jim Robotham would lead the investigation into Janine Jones. He was the only one who really thought there was a reason to be concerned, so it made sense that he would be the person in charge. Head nurse Pat Belko told her boss, Judy Harris, the hospital's nursing supervisor over pediatrics, what was going on, and they both agreed that there was nothing to worry about. Then, Harris took the concerns to her boss, Virginia Mousseau, the hospital's assistant executive director and the top nursing administrator. She didn't do anything either. She just told them to make sure all procedures were being followed, and that was it. And that's pretty much what I have figured out about Virginia Mousseau. She really liked to be in charge, but not do much. The nurses in charge at Bear County Hospital were just as much an enemy of critically sick children as Janine Jones was. They were completely unwilling to even admit or think that there might be a problem with one of their nurses. Even though kids were dying left and right, they would rather stick their heads in the sand instead of do something to figure out what was happening. And this is just something I don't understand. And you're going to see Janine Jones lucks out throughout her whole career. People say that it's just a coincidence that she is the nurse on duty when children die, that she treats the most sick kids. So that makes sense that kids are going to die more often when Janine's around. But kids are fine until Janine appears on the scene. Even kids that she treats, they're sick, she leaves, a new nurse comes on, all of a sudden they're better. Things are looking up. It's all great again. Then Janine comes back to her shift and kids die. Like it doesn't make sense. And I don't understand why people don't think that she could be the person causing the problems. You know, it's not like she's this sweet, mild-mannered, pretty thing that everyone likes. She's abrasive. She's obnoxious. She's hard to get along with. Plus, she's very socially awkward. And that's at the best of times. She's not the type of person that people would say, oh, she was such a mild-mannered lady. I would have never thought anything ill of her. You know what I'm talking about. We've all heard this. You know, 
a serial killer gets caught and the neighbors say things like that. They say, oh, he was a mild-mannered guy. He was so nice. He was so polite. I can't believe that he was burying people in his backyard. Janine doesn't fit into that category. So that's what surprises me that it took so long for people to really think that she was capable of what was going on. All right, off my rant. Back to our story. So children are continuing to die on the 3 to 11 shift and all of them are under Janine Jones's care. The ICU was completely split. Half of them believed that Jones was a baby killer and the other half thought that it was just a witch hunt. Jim Robotham went to his boss, Dr. Robert Franks, and told him of his suspicions. He wanted to look at all avenues. He said he wanted it to be fair. He wanted it to be a thorough investigation. He thought it was possible that Janine was responsible for the deaths of all of these children. But he also knew that she was very disliked in the pediatric ICU and had quite a few enemies. So it could be possible that someone was trying to set her up. Franks told him to go ahead. Robotham believed that someone was giving children drugs to their IVs that was making it look like they were having medical emergencies when really they were just overdosing. Robotham had several ideas. His first was heparin, an anticoagulant drug that was used regularly to keep blood from clotting in IVs and arterial lines. If someone was giving too much heparin to a kid, it could cause the bleeding problems that they'd been seeing with all the children that were dying. Digitalis could also cause heart problems. This drug would make children experience heart problems and possibly make their heart stop. So that could be where the heart problems were coming in. An injection of dis Digitalis could explain where those problems were coming from. Other children just became very lethargic and that led Robotham to believe that maybe Valium was being used. Now, during this time, Janine was actually caught getting ready to give a child an overdose of heparin right in front of everyone. When the doctor caught her and called her on this, she just mumbled an excuse and walked off. Nothing was done. Everything was reported to head nurse Belko, and again, she blew it off. She said, oh, it was a miscalculation on Janine's part. The thing is, though, it's not like the numbers are off by one or two. They're off by the 50s, the hundreds. You, I mean, if you're making those kinds of mistakes, you've got a big problem there anyway. Obviously, you shouldn't be in that room no matter what. So, Robotham put into place a safeguard that all nurses had to have a witness when they gave a dose of heparin. There had to be two nurses, one to watch and then one to sign off to say that it was administered properly. Now, this made all the other nurses in the ICU very mad. They weren't the ones who had medication problems over and over again. Remember, Janine's had it documented in her personnel file that she's had problems with medication dosages throughout her whole time at Bear County Hospital. So it does seem very unfair, but I know I understand why Robotham was doing this. The nurses said it was Janine Jones. She was the one who should be penalized, not everyone. So I don't understand why Bear County was so worried about repercussions from firing Janine Jones because her personnel file was full of these infractions all along. Remember, she showed up drunk on the job. She refused to leave when she was told to leave her shift because she'd been there too long. All the medication errors, refusing to come to continuing education courses, 
They have plenty of reasons to fire her. So I don't understand why Bear County Hospital was so worried about being sued if they fired Janine Jones. They'd had multiple reasons to fire her time and time again. Robotham also ordered that each time a child unexpectedly died, blood was to be sent to the lab to be tested. Everybody was starting to catch on that there was an investigation underway. Janine Jones, of course, complained the loudest because we know Janine loves to be the center of attention. So she complained the loudest that it was a witch hunt and that she knew they were trying to blame her for all the deaths. She told anyone who would listen that she knew they wanted her to leave, but she wasn't going anywhere. Guess what? Children continued to die. You would think that she would get nervous and at least stop for a little bit, but she didn't. Now, Nurse Pat Belko continued to give final warnings to Janine, but nothing was done. No one held her accountable. She kept on breaking rules, not following doctor's orders, doing whatever she wanted. Janine began to blame residents, nurses, and doctors, saying that they didn't know what they were doing. They were the problem in the pediatric ICU, and she was the only one who knew what was really going to help these children, but no one was paying attention to her. And that's why kids were dying, because you know Janine knows everything. Janine's own medical problems started up again. Remember, when things don't work out, she likes to fake sick. At one point, she was admitted to Bear County Hospital for 17 days. Well, guess what? During that time, not one child died in the pediatric ICU, and they didn't even have an emergency code. 17 days. She wasn't there. Why isn't anyone putting two and two together other than Jim Robotham? Now, people were still treating Jim like he was overreacting. But his review of all the children's files who had died were very unsettling, and the common denominator in all of them was Janine. She was caught taking children off her respirators, something that only a doctor was authorized to do. And when she was reported, head nurse Belko said it must have been a misunderstanding. On December 8th, Joshua Sawyer was admitted to the pediatric ICU. He was 11 months old and suffering from severe smoke inhalation after a fire had started at his house. He was in a coma and he was covered in soot. He had already experienced seizures and one cardiac arrest while he was on the way to the hospital. Joshua was in critical condition, but a scan of his brain showed that he had brain activity. So that was a good sign. By December 11th, he started to improve and they were able to move him from the respirator. Janine Jones took over his treatment that day at 3 p.m. Now, we all know what this means. And I will say this. We know the outcome because this case was solved back in the 80s. But the more I read and the more I went over, I think it just infuriates me how many children died at this woman's hands because no one was willing to believe that something wrong was going on. So his condition started to go south after Janine came on shift. His heartbeat became too rapid. The doctors were able to get his heart back to normal though, and it looked like things were going to improve. Another nurse though heard Janine Jones tell Joshua's parents that he was going to have permanent brain damage and that it was be better if he were just dead. Can you imagine if you're a parent, you're standing at the hospital, your child is hanging in the balance between life and death and the nurse who's taking care of him says, oh, he'll be better off dead. 
I just like to me, that would be a reason to fire a nurse. The next day, while he was under the care of Janine Jones, Joshua Sawyer died at 9.22 p.m. As usual, everyone was shocked. He'd been doing well. He'd been improving. It just didn't make sense that his health would take such a bad turn so quickly. There didn't seem to be any medical reason for it. This time, though, doctors sent a blood sample down to the lab to check the level of Dilantin in Joshua's body. Dilantin is a drug that is used to treat seizures. Sorry. When the pathologist tested Joshua's blood, it had a toxic level of Dilantin in it. The chemical analyzer showed 59.6. Now, a normal range would be 10 to 20. With that much Dilantin in his system, Joshua would have been thrown into a cardiac arrest. But in all the confusion between telling parents their child had died, his medical file was very, very thick, and all the other things going on at the hospital, these results were put in his file and no one ever saw them. So this right here could have been the proof that Dr. Robotham had been looking for and it was put in a file and overlooked. Dr. Robotham then ordered the nurses of the ICU to notify him or Dr. Victor German every single time a child coded from then on out. He wanted to especially watch to see how many emergencies involved Janine Jones. He was trying to establish a routine. Janine was very defensive now. She knew that she was the prime target of the investigation. So she decided she was going to change tactics. She threatened Belko and Robotham. She told them that the ICU was her life and that if they tried to fire her, she would use her little black book and give the name of the doctor who caused the deaths of every child in the ICU. Of course, this was an empty threat. Doctors weren't causing the deaths in the ICU. So again, I don't understand why anyone was worried about her doing this. She didn't have anything. She was the person. Yet again, she's trying to blackmail people. I'd say that's grounds for firing someone. But the hospital administrators, they're so concerned about litigation. Robotham, though, was furious with this. How did she have the nerve to think that she could blackmail them for something that wasn't even true? He wanted Jones fired immediately. They have plenty of grounds to do so. This should have been the last straw, but remember, doctors can't fire nurses because nurses are in charge of nurses. So it has to be in agreement and the nursing administrator is only allowed to fire another nurse. And the nurses were, those, Belko and Mousseau and Harris they were a tough wall and they were refusing to fire her. The hospital officials decided that Robotham needed a break and they took him out of the ICU. They told him that he should go back to his research. Now, Robotham felt like they were exiling him and they must have thought that he was overreacting to everything in the ICU. Otherwise, why would they remove him and send him back to his research lab? This also meant that the only person who had been actively trying to get Janine Jones removed from the hospital was now in a research lab somewhere else far away from the ICU. Janine took this opportunity to spread rumors that Robotham had had a nervous breakdown and that's why they took him out of the ICU. Finally, Robotham was going to have some backup though, and that came from the hospital's most prominent surgeon, 
He believed that a child he sent to the pediatric ICU should have recovered, not died. On January 14th, four-month-old Patrick Zavala was sent to the pediatric ICU to recover from an open-heart surgery. The surgery went well, and he was expected to make a full recovery. Sending him to the pediatric ICU was just standard procedure for any surgery like this. By Sunday, January 17th, Patrick was doing so well that it was decided to take him off the respirator. He was doing fine breathing on his own. When the nurse on shift left for the day, she noted that he was alert all shift. At 4 p.m., Janine recorded that Patrick was lethargic. Two hours later, she reported that he had progressively worse symptoms. Janine called in Dr. Edward Eads. He found the baby almost totally unresponsive to even painful stimulation. So meaning like trying to pinch him or... Um, poke him, something to really get him to react. Even then, he was unresponsive. No one could figure out what had caused this significant downturn in Patrick's condition. And then his heart stopped. They called for a pediatrician, and when the pediatrician arrived, there was Janine with a syringe loaded with dopamine. No one had given her any orders to administer any drugs. She'd again gone against the rules. Nurses were not allowed to give drugs without a doctor's orders. Now, doctors were able to revive Patrick, but not long after they got him revived, he started having seizures, and he went into cardiac arrest again. They were unable to save Patrick Zavala. As per usual, Janine acted completely inappropriately. She took a syringe and, like a priest, made the sign of the cross and squirted liquid out of the syringe all over Patrick Zavala's head, and then picked him up and hugged him to her chest and rocked and sobbed. And of course, as usual, everyone was completely weirded out by the whole situation. Now, Jay Kent Trinkle, he was the surgeon who had done Patrick's heart surgery and then had sent him to recover in the pediatric ICU. He was furious. He knew that there was no reason that his patient should have died. He declared that he would no longer be sending any of his patients to the pediatric ICU to recover because he could not trust the care that his patients would be given. From now on, he would send them to the neonatal ICU. And this, and one of his main complaints was Janine Jones. So finally, a real committee was convened and they brought in a group of outside doctors to start a formal inquiry. After concluding their investigation, the outside team also determined that they could not find definite proof that there was foul play afoot in the pediatric ICU, but they definitely thought that the pediatric ICU was disorganized, that there was way too many internal struggles amongst the staff, and that that right there was causing a lot of problems. They also believed that Janine Jones, the LVN, was at the center of all of the problems. They said that there needed to be a complete reorganization of the pediatric ICU. They wanted to remove all of the LVNs and replace them with RNs. Now, if they did that, that would take Janine Jones right out of the equation. She's not an RN, she's just an LVN. So whether she had deliberately caused the deaths or if it was because she was just a bad nurse, they'd get her out of the way. The LVNs were told that they were not being fired. They would be reassigned. 
they could apply for open positions throughout the hospital, anywhere they were interested. Now, everyone was very upset about this, but they were told that this was how other ICUs were run and Barrett County Hospital was trying to keep up with the times. Other ICUs only had RNs, so they were following suit. This new change would go into effect on March 22, 1982. Instead of applying for a new position in the hospital, Janine Jones submitted her resignation on March 17th. So, Bear County Hospital washed their hands of Janine Jones and breathed a sigh of relief. They were rid of her. They didn't have to worry about any kind of litigation from Janine. They didn't have to worry about trying to prove that she was killing kids or that she was just a terrible nurse. They didn't have to try to fire her. She was officially someone else's problem now. After Janine's departure, all problems in the ICU disappeared. Now, Dr. Kathy Holland had worked at Bear County Hospital with Janine Jones, and she finished up her residency and decided that she wanted to open her own private pediatrics clinic in Kerrville, Texas. She'd heard all the rumors about Janine, but she did not believe them. She thought Jones had been used as a scapegoat for what had been happening in the pediatric ICU. So when she left the hospital to open her own private practice, she offered Janine Jones a job as her nurse. Several of her friends that had also worked there at Bear County Hospital approached Kathy Holland and advised her to hire someone else. Rethink this decision. But Kathy would not listen to reason and hired Janine Jones anyway. Now, Janine and her children moved to Kerrville, but they couldn't find housing. So Kathy Holland bought a small house there in Kerrville and let Janine and her kids move in. Well, Kathy and her husband, Charlie, were building a home in Kerrville, but it wasn't ready because Charlie was doing all the work himself. So they were still living in their house in San Antonio. Kathy didn't want to have to make the long commute every day, so she just decided that she'd move in with Janine. And then Janine, Janine's babysitter, Janine's two kids, and Dr. Holland were all living there together. Not long after that, Kathy Sultanfuss, another nurse from Bear County Hospital who knew Kathy Holland and Janine Jones, she decided that she would come work at Sid Peterson Hospital there in Kerrville, and she needed a place to live. So Kathy Holland just invited her to move in too. So it was an odd situation. You know, doctors and nurses, or especially when their employer and employee don't usually live together. And of course, this raised a lot of eyebrows in Kerrville. These new doctors and nurses move into town. They all live together. It was a very odd situation. And it's going to prove to be a big problem later on for Kathy Holland. It didn't take long for problems to start in Dr. Holland's office. Most of the time, patients at a pediatrician's office are pretty routine. A child has a cough or cold, maybe strep throat or the flu, but mainly children do not go into cardiac arrest. The clinic opened in August of 1982, and at first it was slow. They were new in town, and Dr. Kathy Holland expected this. She wasn't worried, and she wasn't disappointed. On August 24, 1982, Petty and Reed McClellan made an appointment with the new pediatrician in town. They were excited that now in instead of just 
a family practitioner, there would also be a pediatrician, someone there, a doctor specifically for children. Chelsea Ann McClellan was Dr. Kathy Holland's first patient in her new office. Chelsea was 14 months old and her mother was worried she was having erratic breathing. Patty McClellan would later say that she never said that to anyone at the pediatrician's office and she didn't know where that came from. She said that when she called to make her appointment, that Chelsea had a cold and that she would like the doctor to check her out. Dr. Holland led the mother and child back to her office so that she could visit with Petty about Chelsea's medical history. The little girl was restless, so Janine offered to take Chelsea out into the hall to play. Five minutes later, Dr. Holland and Petty could hear Janine out in the hall saying, Don't go to sleep, baby Chelsea. Wake up. Dr. Holland went to see what was going on and found Chelsea limp on an exam table, and Janine was putting an oxygen mask on her face. Janine said that they'd been playing ball and that Chelsea had suddenly just collapsed. Chelsea wasn't breathing. They started an IV in her scalp. She then began seizing. Dr. Holland ordered Janine to give her 80 milligrams of Dilantin, the anti-convulsant drug. She summoned the Kerr County paramedics and then told Chelsea's mother what was happening. Petty was shocked. Her daughter had never had problems with seizures and she'd been a completely healthy child. What was going on? Chelsea was taken to Sid Peterson Hospital there in Kerrville. She stayed there for 10 days and made a full recovery. No one could figure out what had caused Chelsea McClellan's seizures. The McClellans, though, were grateful to Dr. Holland and her nurse, Janine Jones. They thought they were rock star stars. They told everyone about how they had saved their baby girl and that they highly recommended them. Just like in San Antonio, Kids starting get, getting sick with major health crises without explanation, and Janine Jones was always in the middle of everything. The emergencies also always occurred when Janine was alone with the patient. It was it's it's a pattern. Janine offers to take the child out of the room so the doctor and the parent can talk, and then all of a sudden, disaster strikes. Also, Practically every single patient that came to Dr. Holland's clinic ended up being transferred to the emergency room for further treatment because each visit turned into an emergency. That's not normal. And I don't understand why Dr. Kathy Holland didn't start to wonder right away and put two and two together that the same stuff was happening in Kerrville that it happened in the pediatric ICU in San Antonio, but she didn't. Dr. Holland, in fact, failed to see any connection to what was happening in her office and in San Antonio. She really just believed that Kerrville had lots of really sick kids. Come on, Dr. Holland, get it together. But Janine, of course, decided she was sick, and so she spent some time in Sid Peterson Hospital herself. Well, she had to be out for four days while she was in the hospital, and for those four days in September, no kids became critically ill in Dr. Kathy Holland's office. She hired a temp nurse out of San Antonio, an RN, and for those days, everything was fine. Normal checkups, regular routine pediatrician office stuff. Nobody had an emergency. Still, Dr. Holland failed to make the connection. 
On September 17th, Patty McClellan called the pediatrician's office to make an appointment for her son, Cameron. She thought he had the flu. The mother said that Dr. Holland asked her to bring Chelsea in also for a quick checkup. The McClellans arrived at the clinic at 1030 that morning. Chelsea ran up and down the hall, playing, wonderful spirits, while Petty, their mother, and Dr. Holland talked. Of course, poor Cameron is over here with the flu, and he just sat miserably in the chair. Dr. Holland then did a quick check of Chelsea, said she looked great, and then asked Janine to give Chelsea her standard inoculations while she checked Cameron out. Dr. Holland ordered two shots for Chelsea, measles, mumps, and rubella, and a diphtheria tetanus shot. Standard vaccines for kids. Should have been no big deal. Petty held her daughter in her lap, and Janine gave the little girl her first shot. Chelsea almost immediately had trouble breathing after she, the shot was given. She made a small whimpering sound, but couldn't seem to get anything else out. Petty yelled at Janine and told her to stop, that something was wrong. But Janine blew her off and said that Chelsea was just reacting to the pain of the shot and holding her breath. And she gave Chelsea the other shot in her other leg. By the time Janine was done, Chelsea had stopped breathing completely. She had turned blue and her whole body was jerking. And then she went limp. The ambulance arrived to take Chelsea to the hospital. They arrived at the hospital in Kerrville. The little girl seemed like she was stabilizing. But to be safe, Dr. Holland wanted to send her to Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio for further testing. She didn't want anything else like this to happen again. And if they could figure out what was causing these seizures, then they could hopefully stop them or at least provide better treatment. Now, there wasn't a helicopter available, so they decided to transport her by ambulance. Janine Jones and paramedic Tommy James rode in the ambulance with Chelsea. Dr. Holland followed in her car and Petty and Reed McClellan, Chelsea's parents, followed in their own car. Chelsea had an IV that she was receiving fluids from and a heart monitor was on. She was breathing with a respiratory bag. Janine and the paramedic Tommy James took turns pumping oxygen through the bag to help Chelsea breathe. And everything seemed like it was going okay. All of a sudden though, Chelsea's heart stopped. The ambulance pulled over to the side of the road. Dr. Holland jumped into the back to assist with trying to get Chelsea to respond. Now, they were still a good ways away from San Antonio, so they rushed to the nearest hospital, which was a small little hospital in the town of Comfort. After about 20 minutes, they declared 15-month-old Chelsea McClellan dead. Three hours after Chelsea died, another patient, now listen y'all, three hours, just three hours. Like Janine's not even trying to hide anything anymore. She's just killing people. Three hours after Chelsea died, another patient arrived at the clinic. Now, Dr. Holland was still at the hospital tying everything up with Chelsea McClellan. So Janine is here all at the clinic all alone. Remember, she's not authorized to treat anyone. She should not be doing anything. Well, Lydia Evans brought her five-month-old son Jacob in to see Dr. Holland. She was told that Dr. Holland was still at the hospital but Janine, her nurse, would begin the exam and the doctor would be there shortly. Lydia began, Lydia told Janine that Jacob had been very irritable and that he would scream and that there seemed nothing she could do to soothe him. And then Janine began her examination. Janine told Lydia that Jacob's fontanel, the soft spot that babies have on the top of their head, was way too large. 
It should have closed up more by now. She also said that his right eye did not respond to light like it should. It was His pupils were very sluggish. Lydia said she had never been told this before at any of his other checkups and thought this was odd. Janine left the room for a few minutes and then came back to say that she spoke to Dr. Holland on the phone and that Dr. Holland would like for the baby to be seen at the hospital so she could run some further tests. Now, Janine wanted to start an IV on Jacob. Lydia Evans wanted to know why was an IV needed if they were just going to go over to the hospital for checks anyway. Janine Jones said it was just in case that he went into a seizure while they were running these tests. And Lydia said that she didn't understand this because her child didn't have a history of seizures and they weren't there for any neurological problems. She did not see why that was necessary. Of course, Janine said it was standard and asked the mother to step outside the room. I don't know about y'all, but even with the doctor, I'm not leaving my baby. I'll stay right here. Thank you very much. I'm very surprised that all these parents, and I know 1982 was a different time. Maybe that's why I wouldn't leave my child just alone, even with the doctor. But all of the parents readily agreed that it was okay for them to be treated without anyone around. So after a few minutes, she heard Jacob screaming. In fact, he screamed six separate times and then complete silence. They rushed the baby to the hospital and Dr. Richard Mason stepped in to help. Janine, Dr. Holland was convinced that he needed to be, to have a respiratory tube put in. And Dr. Richard Mason said he didn't really think so, that the child seemed to be breathing okay. Well, Janine Jones had her fingers down in Jacob's throat and was basically blocking his whole airway. Dr. Richard Mason stepped in and made Janine take her fingers out of the child's throat. Imagine this, he started breathing and Jacob was able to survive. When Dr. Holland asked what happened, as usual, Janine made up a big lie about what had really happened. She failed to say that Jacob had been fussy and that the mom just wanted to check up. She told this big story all about how the fontanel hadn't closed, he was sluggish, all these things that didn't make sense. Dr. Holland just couldn't understand why there have been so many emergencies in such a short time. It was only September. They'd only opened in August. But Janine convinced her that there was just a lot of sick kids in the world. And emergencies happened all the time. People in the community, and especially at the hospital, were starting to notice all the emergencies. And talk was starting to go around about how unusual this was. People were starting to, to suspect things. And just like in San Antonio, everyone had one person in particular in mind. Now, long-term family practice doctor Dwan Packard was especially suspicious. He'd been practicing medicine for 43 years, and he said he'd never had an emergency in his office. He said it just really didn't happen that often. Also, the nurses at Sid Peterson Hospital were starting to complain about Janine Jones and Kathy Holland. They said the children that came to the hospital didn't seem sick enough to be there. All the emergencies were reported at the doctor's office, but by the time they arrived at the hospital, there was no sign of what the nurse and doctor claimed to have happened. But everyone noted that any time Dr. Holland and Janine Jones were around, there was complete, utter chaos. 
On September 22nd, Tony Hall, the administrator at Sid Peterson Hospital, called a meeting to discuss making some changes about how Dr. Holland and her nurse behaved when they were at the hospital. Now, the very next day, Dr. Holland had another emergency at her clinic. They rushed the child, Rolinda Ruff, to the emergency room in Kerrville. The child wasn't breathing, Dr. Packard was there, and Dr. Bra Dr. Bradley, an anesthesiologist, was also there, and he started watching very closely. He saw the child was trying to raise her hand, but it was like she just couldn't quite make the connection of where that hand should go. And it, all of a sudden it clicked with him. She was coming out from under a drug called a nectine. Now a nectine is also known by succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is a muscle relaxant given by anesthesiologist. It's to help insert a breathing tube. But here's the thing, if too much is given, it can cause a patient to stop breathing and die. It's only given in very small doses. Well, they had barely gotten Rolinda Ruff stabilized when another one of their patients who was down the hall went into cardiac arrest. As usual, Janine Jones was down alone in the room with this child. Dr. Bradley told his suspicions to two other doctors and hospital administrator, Tony Hall. They all agreed that they were gonna have to meet later that afternoon and discuss what to do next. Now, Dr. Packard, remember, he was one of the doctors that was suspicious. He'd been suspicious of Dr. Holland and her nurse. And he told another doctor on staff at St. Peterson, Dr. Venus, his suspicions. Dr. Venus had done his residency at Bear County Hospital. So he said he would make some phone calls and see what he could find out. What he found out was not great. He told Dr. Packard that Dr. Holland was well-regarded, that no one had any problems with her, but that Janine Jones had left under a cloud of suspicion. He said that when babies died, Janine Jones was always around, and that in fact, there had been an investigation going on and she decided to resign. Dr. Venus brought his findings to the committee. They spoke with Dr. Holland and asked her if she had ever used succinylcholine herself at her practice. She said she had it there, but she'd never had any reason to use it. So it was in the office, but all the bottles should be there unused. They asked her about her nurse and she said no, that she hadn't used it either and that she trusted Janine implicitly that in fact she was very knowledgeable and that there were things that Janine herself had taught the doctor. After the interview though, the doctors were not satisfied with the answers they had given and with all the suspicion floating around and all the strange happenings, they decided that the hospital was gonna lift Dr. Holland's privileges of treating sick patients at the hospital. She would no longer be welcome at said Peterson Hospital. So they decided to call in the Texas Board of Medical Examiners, notified them of what was going on. Well, the Texas Board of Medical Examiners made a note and put this into Janine's file. They then called the Texas Rangers and told them what had been happening. Texas Ranger Joe Davis said he would investigate. So after more than a year of suspicious deaths, someone had finally notified law enforcement. An investigation ensued, and at first, it was unclear if Holland and Jones should be looked at together or if one of them was doing things independently. It didn't take long for everyone 
to know that Janine Jones was the prime suspect. That is where we're going to stop today. But I promise you guys that next week I'll wrap it up. We're going to get her arrested. We're going to get a trial and we're going to get her convicted and behind bars for good. Um, but it's just, she's so awful and she's done so many terrible things. I can't fit it all in and I apologize. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. You can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Share your ideas. What do you think about Janine Jones? What do you think about the comparisons between her and Lucy Letby? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Also, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and tell a friend about the podcast. Thanks for listening today, and I will see you next week. Bye.